Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Koch. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. This is part two in a four-part series about the so-called end times and mental health as part of early research toward my doctoral dissertation in psychology. I conducted 20 interviews in August of 2019, collecting personal stories about how popular Christian notions of the end times, like the rapture, tribulation, and the left behind series affected people's faith, theology, their life trajectories, their depression and anxiety, and other mental health issues. Last week, we learned the basics, including what most evangelicals understood would happen in the end times, some of the ways that fear, anxiety, and depression were tied up with that for many people, and a lot more. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I definitely recommend starting there. And speaking of part one, after listening to it, a friend said something really interesting to me that I had not thought of. He said, this is child abuse. I want to be careful with that term. Because I think that it works sort of like the term racism or racist. It gets people's hackles up 
before a conversation can even start. But it's possible to abuse a child without meaning to abuse them, of course. Now, I don't want to be the arbiter of which of these particular instances warrant being called child abuse, but I'm pretty comfortable saying that certainly some of them do, at least. And maybe even my own case of being given that Rapture in 96 book in sixth grade uh, would count as child abuse, in which case, am I a survivor of child abuse? This is a strange thought. Um, Should I be thinking about what happened to me through the lens of significant trauma? I think that I probably should. And I've even started talking with my own therapist about this. Um, It's something that I'll be chewing on for quite a while, but I just thought it was worth putting out there for your own processing, especially if you also have been on the end, uh, the wrong end of some of this end times trauma stuff. Anyway, let's get to today's episode where we are going to hear two individual stories, longer ones, one after the other. Now, each of these felt like they would be better told on their own rather than mixed together with the other interviews. First, we're going to hear from Samantha, not her real name. Her story is unique in that it includes a modern-day self-proclaimed prophetess, some serious doomsday prepping, and is the only one of the stories I collected that took place in an African-American church context. When you were uh, exposed to the end time stuff, was it through church? I wasn't uh, going to church until I was like 12 or 13, so around middle school. And I went to a uh, Pentecostal church, primarily a black church, very small, um, probably no more than 30 people in the church. And then, you know, the services were from, you know, sun to sundown. So we were in there all day. Whoa. Uh, Yeah. No children's church, no, you know, small groups. So did you find the same kind of end times alarmism in the Catholic school? Absolutely not. Um, What I was learning in Catholic school was like the opposite of what I was learning in church. So, you know, my church, you didn't have the Holy Ghost unless you spoke in tongues. You had to, you know, fall out and be slain in the spirit and all these types of like charismatic uh, things. And in the Catholic school, they were saying things like, you know, Noah's Ark wasn't real and Jonah, you know, getting swallowed by the whale didn't really happen. These are just metaphors. They were kind of very blase about the Bible, whereas everything I was learning in church was like, this is inerrant, like these events actually happened. So um, I would go home and talk to my mom about things I learned in school. And she would just basically say, like, you know, just forget it. Don't even pay attention to it. The reason I was there was because it was basically like an Ivy, Ivy League pipeline school. So if I could stay in the school, um, I'd go to a good college. So that's all she really cared about. She wasn't really concerned about their theology. She basically told me that all the Catholics were probably going to go to hell anyway. So I didn't have to really listen to them. And you believed your mom over your teachers at the Catholic school? Absolutely. A lot of what my mom said um, was gospel to me, um, mostly because when my mom started going to church, there was an event that happened in our smaller inner city church where, uh, you know, she was being prayed for during a church service. She passed out and then she like, you know, starts speaking in tongues and running around the church and everything like that. But she was speaking in tongues for three days after that. So we went home. Um, she's speaking in tongues on the ride home, speaking in tongues uh, all throughout the night. When she stopped speaking in tongues, she came to me and told me like, 
all the things that God had told her and shown her. And I was a young kid. I was maybe, you know, 12. And then as I'm growing up, I don't know, maybe I got an F on a a paper or something like that. God would tell her before she was able to find out from like another human being. So she'd come to me and say, you know, oh, God, God told me that you were thinking X, Y, and Z, or God told me that you're failing math, or God told me this, God told me that. And I would never argue with her because I thought that she was hearing from God. God was going to rat me out if I dared to do anything wrong. So how often was she right about those? Like, like if you could kind of test it, you know, right. like what was her, how, what was her batting average? I want to say 60% of the time she was right. She would say stuff like, God told me you were thinking about sleeping with a boy. But like, I'm a teenager. So of course, that it's crossed my mind at some point. Sure. But it wasn't like I made plans to do it. So they were kind of vague things. And some of them were completely wrong. Um, But again, I couldn't argue with her on that. Um, So I started to believe that maybe, you know, I was inherently bad. Like maybe, you know, things the things that God was showing her were right, even though they didn't actually like line up with my character um i thought maybe that she knew me more than i knew myself because god was showing her something in me that you know i hadn't even been aware of so she was in an abusive relationship at this time and she said that god told her that um the man she was dating was who we were also living with would leave by the end of the month he would just pack up his stuff and leave and that happened at the end of the month, he packed his stuff up and he left. He'd been living with us for, for I don't know, maybe 12 years. So there were times where I was punished for things that she saw that I actually didn't do. And she would say, you know, well, you thought it. So as a man thinketh, so is he. So it's basically like you did it. So I'd be punished for stuff that, you know, I couldn't really argue. What kind of God did did it force you to believe in? Like, what did all this stuff say about God's character? It told me that he was... Uh, not pleased with us, you know, that he had a plan for us to be better than we were. I unfortunately was born in the United States, which which I believed was like, well, I was told was like New Babylon. So we were just destined to be um, destroyed. And I thought it was just at the time. I thought maybe, you know, God had to do this. And I was lucky enough to be one of the people he chose to save I was like, I, maybe I don't deserve to be happy. Like, God doesn't promise me happiness. He doesn't promise me a, f- a fruitful life. Like, I'm not owed those things. But And if God wants to um, bring an end to the world, then I have to just accept that. That was my, my viewpoint that, you know, this just had to happen. And unfortunately, it had to happen in my lifetime. I often felt like I was always walking on pins and needles and even when I wasn't in my mom's presence that, you know, God was there and he was going to expose me for the type of, you know, bad person that I was. I didn't really feel worthy of love. I didn't feel worthy of, you know, being chosen to follow Christ. I didn't feel worthy of anything. And I really had, you know, a lot of depression kind of resulted of that because I was always in fear of this person, this dark side of me that I I didn't know of. So I tried to like be the best Christian that I could to kind of get myself out of this, this hump of like being bad. And I didn't really know what that meant for me. So it was like all of my relationships with friends or anything I had to like, you know, 
proselytize and I had to share the gospel and everything had a motive towards it. I wasn't able to like kind of really be myself because I thought that the more I leaned into whoever I really was, the more so um, I would find myself in trouble. Did this fit into the theology that your church actually taught or was this more like something that just naturally happened in your own mind? It naturally happened for me and then my church reinforced it. One event, I think one Sunday, I, uh, they wanted to pray for all the children in the church. So we all kind of lined up and they prayed for us and laid hands on us. And the woman who was praying for me while she had her hands over my head, I think I was probably 12 at the time, 12 or 13. And she's like, she asks for, she's like, who is this girl's mother? And so my mom stands up, she waves her hand and she said, you need to watch her. Um, there's a lot of lust. There's a lot of darkness within her. And she kind of like just embarrassed me in front of, every, in front of everyone because I didn't know what those, I really didn't know what lust meant. I didn't really know what she was talking about. And she told my mom to like bring me back to church the next day because she wanted to speak to me and um, to speak to my mom about what she saw. And on the ride home, my mom is weeping and crying and asking me, you know, what's been going on with me? And I'm like, I don't know what she's talking about. I really don't know. And the next day is a Monday. I go, I'm going to school on a Monday and I am stressed out. I'm having like a panic attack in you know the middle of my math class because I'm worried about, you know, seven o'clock. I have to go back to this church and this lady is going to continue to talk bad about me in front of the congregation. So I was stressed. I was stressed and I'm crying. I was talking to my friend and I said, I've done something bad. Something's wrong with me. I don't know, but I have to go back to this church and, you know, deal with it. And then when I got home that night, my mom just decided that she didn't want to go to church that night. I was relieved because I didn't want to experience that, but that ruined my entire day. And it kind of like haunted me because I didn't know what that lady was going to say. And, you know, living with my mom and she's having these visions of me doing things that were unpleasing to God kind of just reinforced that. What do you think was going on in your mom's decision not to go to church that night? I mean, it doesn't seem like she had a headache. I mean, it seems like this is kind of her, this is her arena, right? Like what this woman is claiming to do, your mom can do. And this is her daughter. You know what I mean? Like, like, what do you mm -hmm. think was her actual calculus there? I don't think she wanted to deal with it emotionally because she had such an emotional night um, coming home from church that Sunday. And she didn't get a lot of sleep because those services were long. So that was a night service that we were at. And, you know, we didn't get out of church until 12 o'clock. She had to get up and go to work. And then, um, you know, she was just tired. She came home and she was like, oh, I'm tired. I'm not really going to go. She kind of like brushed it off. And I was sitting on pins and needles all night waiting for her to get home and car to cart me to church and, you know, meet with this woman. I was genuinely surprised that she didn't want to go. But I think in retrospect, she didn't have the um, capability to go through more of the, you know, abuse that my truth was going to cause her. But do you think that in her heart, she believed the lady or do you think that she this was a way of her to be able to say she believed you? No, I think she believed her. Yeah. So she was just avoiding the pain of having to hear more about how bad you were. Right. Or embarrassment, maybe. Correct. I know now that I had, you know, severe 
anxiety. Um, I had panic attacks. I didn't realize they were panic attacks at the time, you know, depression. And uh, I just experienced a lot of avoidance as a kid. I couldn't kind of like talk to my other members of my family about what was going on because they weren't in the church. And um, there was just a lot of secrecy in my life. So in regards to like the abuse in the household, I couldn't talk about that either. So it was just me living a life of fear and um, embarrassment and just shame. I was just, you know, at my core, I had a lot of shame going on that now that I've been diagnosed with depression, general anxiety disorder and PTSD, I see all of those things. They were more intense as a kid than they are for me now, even though they are, you know, affecting me now. I learned to kind of like move around them and um, how to live through them. But I, I never really had any type of like, you know, psyche bell or, you know, um, diagnosis as a kid, which I probably should have. I had like active, you know, visualizations of like destruction and people coming in to like kill me and things like that. I was often paranoid. When you were younger and experiencing panic attacks, let's say between the age of 12 or 13 and 23, what proportion of your panic attacks would you say had a religious or theological element to them? I want to say um, 85%. Okay. And and how many of those were specifically related in some way to the end times or the rapture or whatever? Uh, all of them. All of them. Yeah. Can you walk me through – I mean are you comfortable walking me through some of those specific events? I had to be maybe 21 at this point. Um, I was working as a customer service rep and, um, I'm sitting at my desk and it was a normal day for me, just a normal day. And all of a sudden I felt like, uh, that I wasn't going to make it into heaven, that all the destruction was going to come and I wasn't going to, um, to experience the rapture. And I had like, my chest is beating really fast and I'm sweating. Um, I was on the phone with a customer or something like that. And I couldn't focus on the, what was going on. I went in the bathroom and I'm like trying to calm myself down. And my thoughts are just like, I'm going to hear, you know, depart from me for, I never knew you. I'm going to be left here with everyone. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about all the things I haven't done. This other prophet told me like, I was supposed to write a book um, before the end times came and I hadn't finished the book and, you know, I had blood on my hands in regards to all the lost souls who were not going to hear my testimony and things like that. And it would just hit me in the moment where I'm doing something mundane, like a customer service job. And I feel the weight of my spiritual responsibility and how I'm not measuring up, you know, that was just like one instance later in my life. But I remember freshman year of high school. And I remember being in my photography class. I'm sitting with a bunch of kids and we're talking about, I don't know, music or something like that. And um, I slid down in my chair and I said, uh, eyes like a cat. And I kept repeating it. And I kind of like blacked out. And my friends told me that I was like repeating some weird stuff. I blacked out and I really didn't remember what I was saying. So I was freaked out by it and I kind of left school that day. Um, I didn't know what was going on. I thought I was under like a spiritual attack. So I called my mom and I told her what I was saying in class. And she thought that, um, 
you know, I had like demonic possession or something like that. And it, I was being attacked because of like my assignment for the, the end times. So she said, you have to be really vigilant and protect yourself and make sure you're not around any people who are going to compromise you spiritually because you have work to do in regards to the end times. In 2015, at the age of 23, in this particular milieu that she's been describing, and after being fired from her job with a generous severance package, and therefore with a little money to spare, Samantha was introduced to a self-proclaimed prophetess named Mina Lee Greben. Greben prophesied in spring of 2015 that the rapture would be coming at the end of that year. Samantha was ripe for this message, and she and her mother both believed that Greben was a genuine prophet, and they began to collect food and supplies. But Samantha's story with this particular prophecy started about one year earlier. June of 2014, I had a dream about uh, a natural disaster. So there was a tsunami that came and hit the East Coast, and I was in some type of building, and there's water all around me, and I'm reaching out the door of the building and pulling people out of the water. It was like waves and things like that, and I'm pulling people out. So I told this vision that I had or dream that I had to my mom, and she's like, oh, this ha- this must be an end times type of dream. So she's sharing this stuff with her friends and things like that, and they're giving me interpretations of this dream. Um, and they're telling me that I need to take take a year off school and really hone in on the visions that I'm having and study and get myself prepared for whatever, you know, assignment this is. So fast forward to June, I'm sorry, May of 2015, my mom, um, we're in the car and we're listening to True News, like True News with Rick Wiles. And he would often talk about just like the things that were going on around the world and how that uh, lined up with the biblical prophecy of the second coming of Christ. And um, he had this woman on named Mina Lee Greben, who said that she had been given, uh, getting vision since she was 10 about the end of the world. And she had a vision where God was showing her that Obama would be the last president of the United States, that we would not have an election. And that um, after his second term ended, we would go right into martial law following a natural disaster. She saw the uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse, which were already released onto the earth. And she saw the last one riding over the United States from the time of September to the end of that year. And in the midst of this, I started dating a guy who happened to know who she was too. She's very obscure. Not a lot of people who know who she is. And his father had like trailers of things. He gave me like gas masks. He was like preparing for, you know, martial law in times, all this, all this stuff at the same time we were. So we were all in cahoots and having, you know, someone other than my mom kind of validate what she was saying really kind of kept me in this mindset, even though things weren't completely lining up. So she said everything that we had to do and get done, we had to do by the end of the summer 2015. 
at that point, I was in panic mode. I felt like I had to get, you know, a stockpile together. I had to do all these things. We were kind of following her closely. She had these prayer conferences on the phone. So we would call in and people would discuss their dreams and things that they were seeing and going through that confirm, you know, what she said. I would often go on there and share my dreams and things like that. And she said that I may be one of the people who God leaves behind based on the dreams that I was having. She said, I may be the one, um, I may miss the rapture. I'll be left behind to help, you know, the other people who are left behind make it into heaven. Um, So this is the assignment that I thought I had. In preparation for that, I was, I got like a storage unit. I was putting food in there. Um, I was ordering things online. I was warning all of my friends and family and sending like ridiculous uh, lengthy Facebook messages about the end times. I was writing the Bible out by hand in my free time because she said that the Bibles would be confiscated and we won't have any access to them. So I had tons of journals just handwriting every scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It was a madhouse. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a it was a madhouse. <laughs> So you were all in through the summer of 2015, right? Correct. And did she put, I mean, so when did you realize, oh, it didn't happen? <laughs> I realized it didn't happen the night of Trump's election. Because up until that point, she said, you know, just wait. They're going to cancel the election. They're going to cancel it. Somehow Obama's still going to stay in office. Um, I didn't see, we didn't experience this natural disaster. But she was saying that they're going to find some type of way to make sure this election doesn't happen. And so she, she predicted a natural disaster and she predicted that martial law would be coming by the end of the summer of 2015, but neither of those things happened by then. And then one year and three months later, it's the election. Right. So she got these things wrong. She didn't admit that they were wrong. She probably re phrase them right or something yeah yeah she spun it completely okay Mm -hmm. and you were still in until the election so she kind of she kind of drew a line in the sand there won't be an election correct and so there was no way out of that one i guess correct wow so you eventually then go okay there was an election and so that's when the veil drops for you completely yeah and when the election happened and Obama did not stay in office and martial law was not uh, enacted, I was just like, done. I wasted a a lot of time and a lot of money on this. You know, I re-enrolled in school and finished and, you know, I tried to like mend my life. But at the same time, I'm like, what does that mean for me? Like, what am I supposed to do? I don't know, you know, what my assignment is. I don't know why I'm here. I thought that the reason I was here were the dreams that I was having, the confirmation that people were giving me, those things kind of gave me my worth. And I didn't have that anymore. I was sad. I was sad. I just, I really had to just kind of like find a new, a new path for myself. Yeah. I mean, you had to almost start over at 24, yeah. right? At this point, 20, 24. Yeah. What happened to your mom when Mina Lee's prophecy failed to come true? She never really talked about it. She never really said anything about it. She kind of like brushed it off like in a similar fashion to that day she didn't take me back to church, you know, when I was in seventh grade. It was kind of like, oh, well, she was disturbed by it, but she didn't want to like open up to me about it at all. 
and a lot of her close friends were still kind of like on board with Mina. So I would hear her sometimes on the phone talking about, you know, some of Mina's prophecies, but she kind of like, she wasn't all in. She may have been 20% in at this point, even though nothing came to fruition. She kind of like held on to it a teensy weensy bit. And funny enough, just a couple days ago, I was talking to her and she's like, uh, you know, if Biden wins, he could reelect President Obama and he could be the vice president. And maybe like, maybe Mina was right. Like maybe Obama is going to be back in office and then everything she said is going to be true. And I'm just like, I laughed at her. I'm like, you cannot... (laughs) You cannot be serious with this. So I think in the back of her mind, she's still kind of like keeping an eye out for um, the signs of the times, I guess. And if it lines up with Mina, with what Mina was saying. But again, she's not going to be super open with me about that. How do you think of this aspect of your mom today? Like, do you think that that's God in some way? Do you think it's some mixture? Do you think that she's just super intuitive I struggle with that now because I came to like a realization when it came, in regards to me, I was like, everything she saw was always negative. It was never anything positive about me. Mm. Um, and then some things that she saw, you know, didn't come to pass or they were, maybe she interpreted them wrong. And that's kind of where I'm at. Like maybe she saw things and she didn't know that they weren't literal. She's always been an intuitive person. Uh, so I think that the um, intuition, you know, combined with spiritual giftings that she believed she had, the church kind of hyping her up along with just her having anxiety from the trauma she experienced kind of like mixed together, uh, created, you know, kind of like a violent spiritual person (laughs) that I really couldn't um, combat with. I couldn't really get through to her in a lot of things because... I was always in fear, you know, and like I wouldn't bring over friends because she might read them and tell me, you know, I can't hang out with them anymore because God showed me X, Y, and Z about this person, that they're bad, that they're using you. So I I talked to her about this, I want to say a year ago, and I kind of asked her how she feels about the stuff that God would show her back in the day. And I told her how it hurt me. She apologized and she said that maybe, you know, maybe she got stuff wrong. And she was immature and maybe, you know, she didn't really understand the things that God had showed her. And maybe that she was just fearful for my safety overall, which is why she saw a lot of things. And all the stuff about you ended up being negative, right? Because she's afraid. Right. Oh, this is also something that she said she saw her and I, like God gave her a vision of us. And I was like in my 60s and she was in her 80s. And, you know, we were living somewhere and I was brushing her hair. So I'm thinking that, okay, well, if God comes back, which she said that, you know, Jesus was coming back in her lifetime, this was going to be when my mom is older in age and I was going to be a little bit older in age. She kind of felt like she had a lot to do on this earth before that got it got to that point. Um, and we had an assignment to fulfill before, you know, God came to call us home. Yeah. Okay. So, so then when you're younger, it's not so much your mom that's pushing the end time stuff. It's more the pastors of these two churches. Correct. And when we get to Mina Lee, the, the prophetess, mm-hmm. uh, does your mom buy into that too or just you? 
It was her. Yeah, she she bought into it. So and she I, would she would have to say that she had a wrong understanding of her vision of you guys in your 60s and 80s then. Or did she not mention that? She didn't mention it. But I, you know, there were times at church that prophets would come and speak to me and tell me things about my future. And I had questions when, when Mina Lee came into the picture. I'm like, okay, all these experiences that I was supposed to have, what does that mean? You know, and her answer to me was, people lie. So maybe all the prophecies that I've been given over my childhood and teen years were lies. And what the truth is now is what this Mina Lee is saying. So she wow. kind of, yeah, so she kind of dismissed her own her own visions along with everything else that we had been told and believed by people, you know, in favor of what Mina was saying. Do you still consider yourself a Christian? I do. How serious of an obstacle to remaining a Christian has your experience with end time stuff been? It was very difficult. It was very difficult for me to remain a Christian, but I didn't know what the alternative would be. Yeah, I couldn't see myself not believing in Jesus. Like what I felt was like people are just, you know, speaking for God when they don't really have the answers and they're lying on him. And I felt bad. I'm like, I felt bad that I was deceived as he talks about in the Bible. And I, you know, I felt like less than a Christian because I was so deeply deceived by someone like her and the other people in my life. But at my core, I still felt like I was a Christian. But still a kind of a sense of inadequacy. Like you, you found a way to turn it on yourself just like you had when you were a teenager. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think's going on there? I don't know. <laughs> I didn't want to blame God at all for it. I just blame myself. I kind of like separated the two things. Why not blame other people? Like it doesn't have to be blaming yourself or blaming God, right? You could blame mm-hmm. the people who mistreated you. Yeah, I could. <laughs> I could. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my upbringing of blaming myself for everything, it, it never crossed my mind to really be upset with other people. I just felt like they were just as deluded as I was, and they wanted to lean into their delusions, whereas I kind of um, had to experience a stop, you know? That election had to be the breaking point for me to kind of, like, back up and really evaluate my trust in other people and how quickly, you know, I can give over my life to something without figuring myself out first. You know, I never took the time to really know myself because... I let everyone else tell me who I was and why I was here going forward. You know, I have to check in with myself, which I never, I never did that before. So do you currently believe in a rapture and the same kind of end time stuff that you used to believe in? No, I have no thoughts toward it anymore because the more I think about it, the more I get upset about, you know, what happened to me. Like, do you still have panic attacks related to end time stuff? No. How do you think you got past that? I got past it by just removing myself from that environment completely. Like I I did stop going to church. I stopped reading the Bible, but I still consider myself a Christian. But I was like just backing away from the spiritual, you know, aspect of my um, not my belief system, but that overly spiritual life that I was living. I kind of just wanted to be like run-of-the-mill, holidays-only type of Christian for a little while and um, lean into to that life 
as opposed to the charismatic stuff. So you so you're not going to church today then? No. Would you prefer to find a, a church community that isn't uh, isn't so I don't know intense for lack of a better word? Maybe down the line, but I can't see myself going into a church right now without being overly cynical and, um, you know, just not receiving anything that's being said. I think I'm at the point where I'm very hardened uh, in terms of like church attendance and, you know, being in that community because of the things I experienced as a kid. I think that I can, I foresee myself, you know, doing my own study of the Bible and praying when I feel like I need to pray and just kind of living my life that way without a church community. I can't see myself getting back into church at all. What message do you have for listeners who might've gone through or going through something similar to what you've gone through? I would say, um, get to know yourself and really, you know, lean in on your wants and your needs in your life before you hand that over for someone else to, um, to provide that for you, that you're worthy of, you know, love and respect and, yeah, just get to know yourself as much as possible and go to therapy because everybody needs it. <laughs> Amen to that. This story would not be complete without a little bit of follow-up on this Mina Lee Grebin character, right? The night of the election, I went on her Facebook and on her website. They were both down. I couldn't find her online at all. She basically went into hiding for three months and then she resurfaced with completely new prophecies. But at that point I was just like totally done with her. Um, and some people that I know are still following her to this day. I'm not sure what she's founding out now. Well, Samantha, I have taken a look into it and here are a couple sections from her most recent blog post. As of today, um, when I was looking this up, the post was in November of 2019 quote, I was standing on the end of the square, and directly across from me on the other side stood Obama. The distance between us was about 30 feet or so. At first, Obama had his usual charming smile on his face. He greeted me with a wave and a nod. Moving forward a bit uh, through her post, quote, Obama then walked down the stairs and returned to the opposite side of the square. His face began to change before me. He spoke and said, I cannot cross the lawn because it's hallowed ground. I continued to watch as his eyes began to change and grow fiery red. His gaze was fixed on me, and I watched as the evil began to grow inside of him. Suddenly, I began to ascend up into the sky. Obama's evil gaze never left me as I went up and up toward the clouds. I continued to watch him below when I saw wings begin to appear out of Obama's back. One wing stretched out and then another. They were bat's wings. He began to flap them vigorously as he lifted off the ground. For a split moment, I felt fear, but then I ascended up into the clouds where Obama was no longer in sight. End quote. Uh, she, she also has a couple shorter posts on another prophecy website from just within a few days from now. So uh, they're just not quite as quotable as that one. But yes, she is still out there, still prophesying, and at least some people are still listening I didn't find evidence of uh, a whole bunch of people. Um, at any rate, I just had to share that. I want to thank Samantha for being brave and honest about this really incredible story. 
Um, and after the break here, we will hear from Steve and how an expectation of an imminent rapture got wrapped up in his own story of sexuality and mental health. The second patron-exclusive episode this month is coming about a week later than usual, so I haven't recorded it yet. I'm going to release it just maybe tomorrow um, based on the scheduling here. Uh, I can tell you a little bit about it, though. So it is a new segment I'm trying out, and I'm trying it first with these exclusive episodes. It's called I Don't Believe in That God, and the idea is that I bring in an atheist. Uh, Of course, I'm not trying to convert them to Christianity or theism or anything, but we have a a genuinely open uh, conversation about what is it that they don't believe in. Uh, In other words, like what do they think that God would have to be like to exist such that they don't believe that that God exists. And I'm really curious. I think it will be different with each person, but it'll be interesting to see what I also don't believe in, what I do believe in, where we actually differ. So that's the plan. That should be out tomorrow night or the day after for patrons of the show. You can become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com slash dancoke, or you have permissionpod.com and click become a patron The other benefit of the patron group is the Facebook group, which is for patrons only. Uh, And as I've said many times, that's really become a beautiful little community online. So if you'd like to support the show, consider that. If not, no worries. Just enjoy it. Also, if you are in a position where you really can't afford it right now, there are scholarships available. Some people have upped their patronage amount per month in order to pay for people who can't afford it right now. Email me if that's you. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Also, feel free to up your patronage if you'd like to sponsor someone else and just shoot me a message saying that you did that, and I'll make sure that gets to someone. All right, back to the episode. So now we are going to hear Steve's story again, not his real name. He's 34 years old. And he grew up non-denominational in a large family in upstate New York. You uh, you gave me some Cliff's notes before our chat, and I want to make sure we hit all these parts of your biography. How were you originally introduced to end times thinking, and how old were you? The church that I grew up in was one of those like hyper-aware of the end times kind of churches. Uh, the first time I remember really being just like steeped in it. My dad read us the book of revelation as like a bedtime story kind of thing. Um, how old were you? I, I would guess probably eight maybe at that point. And, uh, and he had this brilliant idea to have my mother hide on the stairs where she couldn't be seen. And when he talked about the angel blasting the trumpet, my mom is a trumpet player. So she like blasted the trumpet, scared us to death. I thought like the world was ending that very night. (laughs) That's my earliest memory of being like, you know, just absolutely 100% gripped by this fear of the end times. How quickly did your parents say, hey, it was just mom blowing the trumpet? Almost immediately. I think dad was like, at first he thought it was very funny. Like my dad's like the king of practical jokes, but I think he realized that he scared us um, like too much. So, you know, my mom like came out, they sat us down and talked us through it. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a mistake. 
but and they but they immediately recognized it was a mistake from a parenting perspective. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, that's that's a little bit better. Would your church have said our central message is the gospel of Jesus Christ or something to that effect? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So, what was the relationship, as far as you understood it, between what we might purely think of as the gospel, something about Jesus is Lord, died for our sins, etc., and Jesus is coming back soon, end time stuff. Like how, what was the relationship between those two general claims or postures? It was almost as if one is your, your defining statement, Jesus is Lord. And the other is your engine driving, you know, the, the growth and, and daily activities of the church, you know, Jesus is Lord. And then the engine is he's coming back soon, you know, the end time. So that like that, was everything you needed to drive people to um, take things more seriously, to show up to the services, to give a little bit more money, to bring people to services. You know, it made everything so much more important and urgent that you do it and do it right and do it now. They kind of cycled back to that topic in Sunday school and in Sunday sermons on a pretty regular basis through most of my childhood. And then the Left Behind series was coming out, and so it just like you know hyped everything up. I um I was just old enough to be able to read both the Left Behind series and the Left Behind Kids series and be doubly scared. <laughs> um, uh, it was like the fallback, you know. If you you couldn't think of a good sermon series, there was always the good. The end times are here because you know obviously they have to be because that was like you know the spirit of the age or whatever. You know, bringing the Christianese terms. That it's it's funny because the one aspect of the Godhead that would kind of vanish in all this talk was um, love and mercy. You know, like low key, not like you know they didn't like you know spearhead this like ah God's coming back so that we will be right and you losers are going to burn forever. That it was more low key and gentle than that, but it was always just like that you know, vindication, like when God is back, you know, and we've been right all along, he was very much kind of like the, um, the yeah, the vindicator, I would say that's a good term for it. He was, he was coming back to prove us right and to make sure that everybody, all the uncomfortable aspects of our lives that we didn't want to deal with would vanish so that we could all just be, you know, in the millennial kingdom with him where everything I'm sure would just look exactly the way we wanted it to. You also mentioned something about, well, when you're supposed to doubt yourself, what you're supposed to doubt is your own reason, your own sort of gut feelings. I'm I'm getting um, – you called it your heart, but I took it to sort of mean your gut, you know, kind of like what seems yes. true and right to you. And what you're supposed to turn to instead is basically uh, the teaching of the Bible as filtered through the authority of the pastor. Is, is that right? Correct. Yep. So I wanted to ask if you thought there was a relationship between that authority – of that of the pastor figure and the end times uh, thinking and 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 theories, <laughs> I've put a lot of thought into that. I I think there is for certain. I think the specific church cycle that I grew up in, the community, they've um, they've kind of created their own small little empire up here in the middle of nowhere, and they've got a um, a network of you know a couple different campuses all under the control of this one particular pastor that's been there since, you know, I was a very young guy. And I think that was definitely part of his, you know, whether it was subconscious or conscious, I have my own thoughts, but you know, like, um, I think it was definitely part of his tool set that secured 
his, you know, absolute power over, over the congregations. What kind of evidence was given that it was in fact the end times? Do you, do you remember? It's funny because it absolutely contradicts what they would say now. But like when I was a kid, anytime there was any kind of like weather phenomenon or anytime there was, you know, rumors of wars or actual wars, it was all supporting the fact that the end times were here. But then, you know, that whole global warming thing took, you know, a pretty big uh, step back for everybody. So now, now there is no weather phenomenon. So, whereas before they would be all over this stuff, like, oh yeah, clearly Jesus is coming back soon. Now there is no weather phenomenon. It doesn't matter what you say because global warming's not real. <laughs> okay, so that's interesting. So it would be weather phenomenons phenomena would be a big sign, and but now you're you're still in touch with people who think this way, I guess, and and speak this way. And you, you've seen a shift to where weather is never a sign. Would you say because there's a prior commitment to denying climate change or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. So my, I'm the second of nine kids, and my entire family is still steeped in the very same religion that I grew up in. I'm the only one that's on the outside of that. And so it's, it's very interesting to me because now, you know, having been removed for almost 15 years, I can look at this stuff and be like, Hey, we would have been all over that in 1997, you know, <laughs> uh, but, but apparently now uh, weather doesn't matter because it's not real. How long would you say you pretty much bought into it 100% for how many years? Yeah, I was 100% until I was a sophomore in high school. So for several years after that point, until well into my 20s, I would have the flip-flop effect where for most of your day in your life, you'd be like, no, I'm not sure I buy into this. But then you'd have a weak moment or, you know, a moment of crisis. And you'd be like, oh, it's all true. And I was wrong. And I'm going to go to hell. <laughs> kind of a yeah. kind of a second guessing yourself sort of a experience. Yeah. Like which we were, you know, trained to do from birth. You know, you're, you're always supposed to second guess yourself because, you know, your heart is desperately sick and you're just supposed to rely on Jesus. <laughs> Can you say a little more about that, actually? That, because this second-guessing thing has come up, but you're the first person to sort of explain it uh, through the, the church teaching or, or maybe kind of account for it. Yeah, so it, I actually was in a pretty unique perspective. When I was younger, my father um, was a lot more skeptical, and he used to teach us like the teaching of Aristotle, or he would read to us from Matthew Arnold, and he would be like, you know, use critical thinking. And then as he got older, he surrendered that thinking. And now he's like all in, never use your brain, never, never look at things with your heart, you know, because it can't be trusted. So I got a little bit of almost like intellectual armor when I was a kid through my dad's, you know, you know, side teachings. So that as I kept growing up, I was able to look at things and, you know, I would be able to ask the questions that no one else in youth trip would ask because you wouldn't dare. And so I could kind of like go home, ruminate on that and kind of realize like, I'm pretty sure that the structure I exist in is cultish in nature. And, uh, and I'm pretty sure that the things that we're being taught to do have been there since birth, obviously, you know, I, I was able to identify that. And, uh, and they were all for the purposes of making us um, always circle back to the, uh, the end answer is the pastor knows pastor and you know the holy spirit now and those answers are always going to be the same you know right? so if you have a different answer to the holy spirit you're wrong <laughs> and uh and you just gotta never rely on your own judgment 
because that's that's the wrong answer always like you know you know, hands down um and i also had another very strong motivator for wanting to uh analyze this and come up with different answers because i am a gay man and so i was growing up you know a gay christian and then you know that's just not compatible especially in the circles i grew up in so so i had you know one the teachings of my father and then two a very strong internal motivator that uh that you know kind of allowed me to be able to take a perch and see things from a point of view that not really everybody else in the church was able to can you talk a little bit about that move of doubting yourself so i think it's clear how that applies to maybe you intellectually get past the rapture or a particular eschatological vision of the future but then you know there's a blood moon and you see a, a billboard and you think wow maybe i'm wrong and all this stuff is right after all but how does that end up working uh, with your sexual orientation is it is it the same move it seems like it might be have a different character because uh, you know, sexual desire is so much deeper, so much more um, holistic than I think this is happening in the future or something like that. Right. Yeah. It's interesting because where I am now, I've been removed long enough that I don't really have those very often anymore. But if I try to remember back to, especially in my in my 20s, for sure, they used to be a lot more frequent and a lot more powerful. And they were almost always connected, my sexuality and the end times philosophy Everything about my faith was so steeped in end times lore, um, and everything about my sexuality had been so steeped in my faith, it was kind of just like drawing from the same bucket. So yeah, it would just be like, you know, like you said, like maybe there was a blood moon, or, you know, maybe there was some something that was coming to pass, or, you know, maybe you found yourself alone when you expected to find all your family members around you, and you're like, have I missed the rapture? And instantaneously, just like that, you're like... I was wrong all along. You know, I shouldn't be gay. I should have believed in Jesus. Now I have to suffer through seven years of horrible tribulation and die in the end. And you're like, it was just, you know, it's funny. It was just instantaneous. And you'd, it would take 10 times as long to pack it all back up and, you know, reassure yourself, like, come on, buddy, um, that it would to fall apart. Wow. I, I mean, I, I really relate to that part, especially of just like taking 10 times as long to pack yourself back up, you know, with my own panic disorder and panic attacks that I've experienced throughout my life. It's yeah, it's at least 10. I mean, it, it falls apart in two minutes and you get into it with a panic attack, you get into like an adrenaline cycle in your brain, almost like no time at all. And it takes hours to ride that wave, which is very helpful language. I learned from my dad, who's a therapist of you have to just ride the wave and know that that wave is going to take a long time, but yeah, it takes way longer to come down than it does to go up. Yeah. So I've always been a very detailed dreamer. I, I dream very weird dreams almost every night. I always remember them. Uh, and most of my friends are like, man, you, ha you have crazy dreams. I don't even remember my dreams. I don't dream every night. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I've got a creative brain. What can I say? And then um, at first in the, in the Left Behind series, there's a character, Buck Williams, who has dreams because the young men will dream dreams and, you know, they were supposed to be visions from the Lord. And then I started reading about it on my own. And then I had a conversation with a traveling um, prophet is what he called himself who came to our church. And he was like, you have the gift of prophecy and you're going to receive it through dreams as the young men do in the end times. And so of course, from that point on, 
every dream I had wasn't just like a random creative Ethan's brain is having fun in the middle of the night dream. It was like a message directly from the Holy Ghost. Every dream I had was suddenly the most important. It was like, you know, I was being given visions in my sleep from from the everlasting. And, you know, then I was being asked to go about my regular day when clearly the most important thing that any human being on earth could be doing at that given time was trying to analyze and understand my dream because it was way more important. <laughs> no one else understood that and they were all stupid. <laughs> so did that lead to a kind of, a, I don't know, like a, a megalomania or a, some sort of messiah complex or I, I'm, I'm not finding the right term. You understand what I'm saying? Like, No, yeah. Yep, I know what you mean. Yeah, absolutely. I suddenly felt responsible for every, you know, sinner in my life. You know, it was like, They've got to be saved, and I'm sure I'm being given the tools if I could just understand my dreams. And so it would lead to me praying for hours for the gift of Daniel, you know, or Joseph to be able to interpret these dreams. And then I would feel like I was a failure because I wasn't able to do so. And it would always tie back to the fact that I like boys, and clearly. This was like a thorn in my side, like Paul used in language, you know, and uh, and if I could just get that part out, then I would be given the uh, the gift of understanding my dreams. So it was my fault, you know, one, because I wasn't able to help the people I need to be helping. And two, because it was because I was gay. I was in college. It was it was the same sex attraction. It was the end times. Um, I was kind of towards the end of things. I was trying to come away from it at that point, but its grip was still very strong. And then in addition to that, I was um, depressed and we uh, didn't realize it at the time until like they, you know, things came to a point and they got me help you know? and they were like, yeah, you're experiencing clinical depression. I was outed to the college by some friends who thought they were doing the right thing for me. I was uh, I was in uh, mourning. I had lost a very good friend um, to suicide and another very good friend to a car accident, all within a very short period of time. I was going through just regular, you know, early twenties, you know, Christianese. Like the world isn't what I thought it was growing up. You know, there was just a whole lot going on, and um, and it all boiled to a point where I could not deal with the reality of life anymore. I had two semesters where I don't really remember what was going on. Some days I was getting out of bed. Some days I wasn't. I was always tired whether I slept or not. I had a zero GPA for both those semesters. <laughs> and, um, and uh, yeah, so they, uh, the college intervened. They were like, listen, we are very concerned. They, um, they required me to seek counseling. I had every uh, you know RA and RD on campus suddenly found a reason to stop by and see me all the time and, um, which is good you know like like it was good I, I was gonna um, say that that part I, sounds kind of like a blessing in disguise in, in the long run yes yes absolutely but it was just, uh, the end result of that is that I, I didn't swing back into you know a healthy lifestyle and get back into classes I um, I withdrew from the school because things weren't getting better. They were getting worse. And then there was a three and a half year period, give or take a few months in which I don't really know on a day to day basis, what was going on. Um, I was living with my parents. I was trying, we have a family farm. I was helping out on that, I guess, you know, um, there was, there's no work history for that period. There's no really anything. I don't really even have a good memory of that period. Like there's a specific, 
a few events that will stick out, like specific holidays or birthdays or something like that. But as a whole, that period of my life is just kind of a haze where I, you know, I was uh, I was kind of awake. I was kind of asleep. It was almost like living through a dream state. You see, it's almost like you lost three and a half years of your life to this stuff. Yes. Yep. Do you have like sort of mental health language for that period? I mean, you, you've already mentioned what sounds like panic attacks. You said you were clinically depressed. Was that what was going on? Was it something else? Like, do you, is there vocabulary for that period? I don't really have a good vocabulary for it because I didn't like anything that I would have would just be like, you know, me attributing to it, you know, out of my own brain. I saw mental health professionals when I was at school because the school was like, you need to. But when I was back with my parents, real Christians don't need mental health because the joy of the Lord is your strength. (laughs) Um, And, you know, you just, you know, you just need to run faster and jump higher and try harder uh, so, so we didn't have, you know, anything like that available to me because, you know, real Christians don't really get depressed. You know, they just, you know, may have sorrow for the night, but the joy comes in the morning. <laughs> so, so for that period there, there wasn't anyone I was seeing, nothing was going on, you know, so there wasn't any official diagnosis of anything. So you mentioned, you know, you've got this kind of dual minds thing going on where most of the time. It seems like starting in in maybe late high school and into college and then certainly now, uh, increasing is the amount of you that says, ah, this stuff was probably kind of culty and wrong. And decreasing is the part of you that says, but what if it's right and and all right and I shouldn't be gay and I should expect Christ any moment and whatever. My, My question is during that three and a half year period, I know you don't have a very great memory, was one of those two minds kind of more in charge than the other? Because that seems kind of like a middle spot in your story right from from what i can remember in that three and a half year period i was kind of just faking it um i didn't really believe that the christianity i had grown up with was was real and i knew without a shadow of doubt i was gay that's not changing but i was living with my very conservative parents and i was you know going to their very conservative church the same one i'd grown up in um on a weekly basis and so it was kind of like, just don't rock the boat, man, you know? But so so, like, so you would you were willing to go to their church, even though you didn't really believe it anymore. Do you ever wonder, like, why didn't I seek out a continuation of counseling? I mean, they didn't believe in it, but, like, would they have actually prevented you from that? I don't think so. I think my parents have always tried to do the right thing. I think if I had said, I need to talk to somebody, I think they would have been receptive to that. I ask myself that all the time. I don't like, I'm, I'm just not sure. I was like, come on, man. Cause like looking back at it from, you know, from now being 34 years old, it's like, dude, you, you needed help. You needed help that you weren't able to get on your own. But as to why I didn't ask for that or didn't seek it out, it still bugs me. You also wrote in your note to me that there was a, a point where you thought that Jesus's rapture would save you from having to like live a gay lifestyle. Can you, Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So one of the things that was very heavy with me was that I am uh, I'm an older brother to many younger brothers and sisters, many of whom I have more of an uncle relationship with because, you know, I was a teenager when they were born. So when I was going through like the heaviest struggles of my sexuality, these kids were very, very young and they were like a source of 
joy and refuge for me. Like I could come home and instead of having to like deal with heavy thoughts, I could just play with toddlers who love to see me back because they missed me. And I love to see, I miss them, you know? And, uh, and, but then it became a weapon of my own brain to be like, well, if you are really gay, I mean, that's the end of your relationship with these brothers and sisters. Like, you know, your parents aren't going to let a gay guy be in their lives. You know, like you aren't going to be able to tell them you're gay, you know? And it just became like a, like an echo chamber of that thought to the point where it was like, you, you like, you can't even be gay and be in your own family. Like, you know, so, so something's got to give, like you either have to like die and not be gay anymore at some point or, uh, or, you know, like you've got to be saved from it. And obviously the thought of like self harm or suicide was not the area I wanted to go down. And I was trying desperately to avoid that thought. So the alternative was I just picked one and I was like, listen, if Jesus comes back, like, you know, like everyone's been saying he is, he's going to heal. Like, you know, like he's going to come back. He's going to heal the land. He's going to heal. You know, like we're going to enter the thousand year kingdom. I won't be gay in that, you know, like he'll heal me. So like, so I know because I've been praying, you know, every night for years to not be gay. Well, that hasn't really been working, but maybe it's because he needs to be here. He needs to come back and then I won't be gay anymore. So then I started to pray even more ardently, you know, like, come on back tonight. Tonight would be great. You know, like, it just became that overarching thought that like, I'm going to be fine. <laughs> like, like people that get so addicted to playing the lottery that it's like, you know what? My bills that aren't paid are going to be fine because I'm going to win the lottery any day now. <laughs> like, so it was that same kind of thinking, like I'm going to be fine because Jesus is coming back any day now and I'm not going to be gay anymore. <laughs> wow. Just to sort of understand its place as a motivation among other possible motivations, why would the rapture be a better solution than, say, gay conversion therapy? Or did you not? Were you not aware of conversion therapy? I I was and I wasn't. When I the first experience I had with it was when my parents found out that I'd been messing around with the literal boy next door. Um, I was fourteen years old. We had a prayer meeting to cast out the demon of homosexuality. It was the most embarrassing moment of my life being 14 and realizing that both of your parents know your deepest, darkest secret and we're talking about it and it's happening. <laughs> and then on, you know, on top of that, it's like now you have to cast that demon out of you in front of them. And like, you know, there's like this huge expectation that it's going to work and knowing that like, this is, this is bullshit. You know? <laughs> um, so it was just kind of like, uh, so I walked away from that experience with like, all right, that is never happening again. Uh, that was just the most horrific thing. And I would rather do almost anything than be back in that position. So yeah, so I was, I was aware that gay conversion therapy existed out there, like groups like Exodus International that have since been disbanded, you know, like, but you know, they were not really an option at that point in time. They became one later when I was in college, I started um, using them as a resource. But at that time, in like in my high school years, that was just not an option. Yeah, because it would basically bring that back up and get your parents involved and just kind of open that wound and better to just pray yeah. for Jesus to come. That's simpler. Absolutely. Yeah, my parents could not be involved. Nope. <laughs> Was like the verse, you know, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the son of man knows ever brought up 
And if it was brought up, how was it responded to? It was brought up quite frequently. There was a, within the church that I grew up in, there was a small contingency of people who were kind of like, listen, our focus on the end times is a little ridiculous. Um, So they would bring that up at any point that they could, whether it was like bringing it up through prayer, like, you know, as everyone would be praying around like a a particular visiting uh, pastor or something like that. And and we would all be praying about, you know, during the end times, they're going to like, and then this person would pray and they would get the microphone and be like, and remembering that no one knows the, (laughs) they would like speak like any chance they could just infuse it in there. They would. Um, but it was kind of like, I mean, we all regarded it as, as scripture, right? Like it's real. Yes. Of course we don't really know, but clearly we kind of do though, because like everyone knows that they're a little bit more special than everybody else. So, so yeah, I mean, nobody really knows, but I mean, like we've got a pretty good idea. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Do you consider yourself a Christian today? I do not know. And what role would you say that the end times stuff, I mean, obviously, as you've explained it, it's pretty enmeshed in some other things, but to the extent that you can isolate it, what role did that play in you losing your faith? It was a pretty big one. It was among the biggest chips in the paint that allowed me to start, you know, seeing underneath things and trying to start thinking about things with my own brain. Um, And I think it was the one that was the most personal because it was it was so closely tied with my sexuality that they were almost like two heads of the same coin for me. So um, and it was a it was a very easy way for me to try to dig in to the sexuality aspect without actually talking about it or giving a term or, or voice to it, which I still wasn't ready to do. So I could attack end times theology in my brain and be attacking the you know the anti gay theology at the same time without actually having to admit to myself that that's what I was looking for or looking to do so that they almost became the same topic for me. You mentioned earlier this fear you had when your, some of your siblings were still toddlers and little kids. And uh, if you're out, you're not going to be allowed to be in relationship with them by your family. And now you are out and you are no longer identifying as a Christian. And I'm wondering if that happened or do you still have a relationship with those younger siblings and, and with your family? I, I still have a relationship. Most of that thought process was fueled by my own thoughts and with conversations that I would have with my dad in my head. And so the things that he was saying was what I was making him say and not his own actual responses. It didn't go smoothly by any means. That We, we, we have a strained relationship now. Those brothers and sisters are teenagers now, and they – They've been pulled from public schools to their homeschooled now, so they are more steeped in that church's doctrine than I ever was. So it's difficult at times to have a conversation with a 17-year-old who thinks that you're going to burn in hell because you're gay, and it's a choice. But there's undeniable love. Like, you know, these kids have loved me for forever. I love them. They know it. My parents love me. So I'm always welcome. There's never any doubt of that. We have a big family dinner every Sunday. Um, I'm there almost every Sunday. Uh, there's never any question in anybody's mind whether I belong there. The one thing that is difficult is sometimes they are well-meaning, but they will use the opportunity of me being there surrounded by family to, uh, to take you know, hits at me and kind of talk about you know, homosexuality and isn't awful what's happened 
happening in the country nowadays and everything. And just like looking at me, waiting for me to be like, you know, cause in, in everybody's mind, it's only a question of time before one day I'm like, I've been wrong all along. I repent. I know better. Jesus is my Lord. I'm not gay. <laughs> but so, so yeah, it's, um, it's not an easy path without his troubles, but we, we love each other very much. We know that we love each other. And there's that whole idea from, um, was it, is the old Testament? I don't remember anymore. Love covers a multitude of sins. Right. So like, you know, on both sides, like they don't love the fact I'm gay and not a Christian, but they love me. I don't love the fact that they can be difficult to deal with and, you know, never really believing that I really am who I say I am, but I love them. You know? Last question for you. What message do you have for listeners who might've gone through or are still going through something similar to what you went through as regards end time stuff? Uh, take a deep breath. <laughs> it is not as urgent as you think it is. <laughs> You can take a deep breath and take a step back, take your time and uh, and think things through, you know, get the help that you need and don't feel bad about taking time or, or getting help. Thank you guys so much for listening and for sharing these episodes. I'm sure a few of you have been doing that. I've already been getting tons of like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter comments about how much these stories remind you guys of your own story and of course thank you to samantha and steve for sharing such personal and painful stories scott sanjemi edited these conversations thank you scott next week we're going to go back to that multiple voice format like we had last week in part one and we'll be spending some more time with these church communities with these religious leaders and the theological consequences of this teaching After that, we're going to get into pre-existing mental health conditions, OCD and religious scrupulosity, getting into therapy, and more. Again, you can join the Patreon. Starts at five bucks a month. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke. You get access to at least two exclusive patron-only episodes per month and access to the wonderful patron-only Facebook group. You can also get there from youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. Thank you guys for sticking with me for four parts of uh, this topic. Hope it will be worth it. We'll see you next week for part three. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.